0: Thank you for joining us today. We'll be continuing our study of the book of Matthew. We'll be discussing the Lord's Supper and Peter's denial of Jesus. So if you'll open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 26, we'll begin our lesson. Why don't we begin in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for this group. We thank you for the blessings that you continue to pour out in our lives. And we just thank you so much for your word and for the presence of the Holy Spirit to help us in our study of the word. We're all gathered here to study Your Word so that we can grow closer to You in our relationship. And we really desire to live our lives in a way that can reflect You to others. And Father, we just ask that You put on each of our hearts the things that we need to change in our life. Many of us will be together with family in the coming weeks, and we just ask that we reflect you to all of our family members, and any time that you want us to speak truth to one of our family members or friends or anybody that we encounter, if you want us to share our story, Would you just please put on our heart in a really solid way that we know it's you giving us a prompting to say something to somebody. We again thank you for this time. Please watch over all of us. We ask that you continue to protect our families from the COVID virus. Watch over us and protect us. And we pray all this through your son Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in Matthew chapter 26. We finished the Olivet Discourse which is in chapters 24 and 25 last time. So we've got a lot to cover in this chapter, so I'm just going to jump right in today. Chapter 26, verse 1. And it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, and that's meaning the Olivet Discourse that we studied the last two sessions, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. So the Passover began at sunset on Thursday. And Jesus is saying that in two more days, he's going to be crucified. Crucifixion was a death penalty that was really reserved for just the worst of criminals. And here Jesus is telling his disciples that is going to be the way that he's going to die. And it's going to happen in two days. That's what he's telling them. Verse 3, Then the chief priest and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. So the chief priest and the elders, these are the religious leaders, these are the members of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin council, and they're gathered together now in the court of Caiaphas, And Caiaphas had the highest authority in Israel. It's clear that he hated Jesus. His hatred though was more political than theological. He really feared losing his position and his power. Now they are plotting to kill him. Just a little bit of background about the high priest. The high priest was the only one who could enter into the area of the temple called the Holy of Holies in the very middle of the temple. And he did that on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. That position was originally passed down through the ages. It was passed down through the Levitical line. But during Roman rule, the Romans sold it or they gave it as a political favor to people who were supportive of Rome. Now, the Jews, they still wanted to have a high priest that came from the Levitical line. And so it's really interesting what Caiaphas did. He went and married the daughter of Annas, who was the high priest before Caiaphas was. So that was his predecessor. And that then at least sort of looked like he was in the Levitical line to satisfy the Jews. He served from 18 to 36 AD, and he was closely aligned with Rome. In fact, he profited greatly from the merchandising of things at the temple, where we read where Jesus came in and overturned the tables of the money changers and what have you. So that's a little bit of background about the high priest and about Caiaphas. Verse 5. So this is the high priest. They're all gathered together. And they were saying, but not during the festival, not during the Passover, lest a riot occur among the people. So many people came to Jerusalem during the Passover, and that, that's the period that we're in right here. Remember, this is Wednesday that this is happening, that we're reading about right here, with the Passover is going to begin on Thursday, and Jesus is going to be crucified, as he says, on Friday. Many people came to Jerusalem at that time to offer their sacrifices for the priest to sacrifice in the temple, And while they wanted Jesus to die, they did not want Jesus's death to occur during this Passover time, during this festival, because there were so many people there. But as we will see, Jesus's death is going to occur at that time. It's the perfect time for Jesus to die, as we will see. That's how it's going to play out. But that's not how they wanted it to play out. Verse six, actually, before I begin, verse six, as we read it, this is a flashback in time. It's actually a flashback to the previous Saturday. And the reason Matthew puts in this little flashback, we're going back in time here in verse six, he wants to contrast the very loving worship that we see in a woman. It's actually Mary of Bethany. When we go over to the Gospel of John, we learn that. In John 12. The love and worship that Mary has for Jesus, he's going to contrast that to the hatred and the rejection that we see from the Sanhedrin as well as from Judas. We'll see that here shortly. So that's why he inserts this in here to show that contrast. Verse 6, now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume, And she poured it upon his head as he reclined at table. When we go over and read the account in John chapter 12, we also learn that in John's account that there were many of Jesus' friends there. Mary of Bethany, who this is referring to. Martha, Lazarus was also there. You can read that if you want. Go over to John chapter 12 and just read sort of verses 1 through about 6. You'll get that a little more detail in that account. But Mary Bethany is doing this with the perfume because she may have sensed that Jesus' death is going to bring about her redemption, so she's showing tremendous worship and love towards Jesus the Messiah. Verse 8, But the disciples were indignant when they saw this, and they said, What is the point of this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Jesus had taught them to care for the poor and to take care of them, and they really didn't comprehend at this point that the Messiah is worthy of this type of worship. In fact, when we go over to John chapter 12 and verses 4 through 6, it actually says that this is Judas Iscariot who said that this is a waste of money and of this very expensive perfume. And it also tells us, by the way, Judas is the one who used to steal from the treasury. He was treasurer for the group of apostles, and he used to steal from the treasury. So he wasn't really thinking about that perfume as it being something that could be given to the poor. He was thinking about it as it was worth a lot of money, and he could have made a lot of money off of it. Verse 10, but Jesus, aware of this, so he's aware of what they're saying, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me, for the poor You have with you always, but you do not always have me. So, without realizing it, Mary was actually preparing Jesus for his burial. Verse 12, For when she poured this perfume upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. So isn't it interesting that we're still talking about her unselfish worship of Jesus here, you know, 2,000 years later. Verse 12, Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to deliver him up to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. That 30 pieces of silver was actually prophesied in Zechariah 11, verse 12, if you're taking notes and you want to go look at that. So Judas knew that the religious leaders wanted Jesus. He knew that. And as you see the contrast between Mary and Judas, as Matthew is showing us here, Judas just shows total hypocrisy and rejection of Jesus as he will betray him verse 16 and from then on he being judas began looking for a good opportunity to betray jesus so judas totally turns his back on the lord and he turns his back on his own salvation so now let me kind of set up verse 17 and following we're now going to be talking about the passover and the feast of unleavened bread and during the passover it's estimated that there were over 250,000 lambs that were slaughtered at a typical Passover as a sacrifice for their sins. Now, that was just a temporary sacrifice, because as soon as you left and you committed another sin, now you had sin again in your life. But it was something that God had set up, and it was really a precursor to show that what we needed was a permanent solution to our sin, and Jesus is the perfect sacrifice being fully God, fully man, to come and die for our sins, live a perfect life, 30 years, work with his disciples for three years to train them and deal with our sin for three days while he's crucified and buried, and then rise again on the third day to go be seated at the right hand of the Father. So this is the perfect time for Jesus's crucifixion, if you really think about it, because it's going to take the place of this temporary sacrifice that God put in place with the nation of Israel, and now he's offering one permanent sacrifice, one shedding of blood that is available to pay the sins and the debt of all sinners, if they will just place their faith in him. So remember, where we are in the story, this would be Thursday before sunset. The Passover will begin at sunset, when they'll begin to eat the meal, and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, really all of Passover, it was used to commemorate the hurried departure. They were in slavery in Egypt. And remember, they were told to sprinkle blood over the lintel over the top of the doorway, and then the angel of death would pass over the Israelites and go and kill the firstborn of the Egyptians, which would then allow them to escape from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And they had to rush to do this, so they didn't have time to put yeast in their bread. And that's why you see this unleavened bread. It's a symbol just as a reminder of the Passover. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's really the first day of this celebration. The celebration would last for eight days. And so that's where we are in the story. Verse 17, Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, "Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover?" And he said, "As Jesus, go into the city, meaning Jerusalem, to a certain man and say to him, 'The teacher says, my time is at hand. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples.'" So how would they know which man this was? Well, actually, if you go over and look at the account in Mark 14:13 as well as Luke 22:10, It was a man who would be carrying a pitcher of water. That's how they would know which man it was. But you see here, Jesus is telling them, my time is at hand. He knows, he's aware that there's going to be this intense suffering that's going to begin with him that very night. Verse 19, And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So here we see Jesus is directing the preparation of the meal. It's a very elaborate celebration. As I said, it lasted for days. And this had been going on. This was a tradition of the nation of Israel for, you know, the prior 1,500 years. They had been doing this, and they still celebrate it today, the Jewish religion. Verse 20. Now when evening had come, he was reclining at table with the twelve disciples. So the sun has now set. So now Passover has begun. I don't know if any of you have ever had the opportunity to actually participate in a Passover meal, but there's various elements of the meal, and each one symbolizes a different part of the deliverance from the bondage in Egypt. It's a very elaborate and structured tradition that they have. Verse 21, And as they were eating, he, being Jesus, said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved... They each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. So they were dipping bread into the bowl. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So, Jesus must be sacrificed to provide us our salvation, and that's the plan, but Jesus is also saying, but that doesn't relieve the betrayer of his guilt, as we will see. And by the way, no one suspected Judas as the treasurer that he would be the one to betray. Even God used this terrible evil for good to then give us our forgiveness and salvation and when i say nobody knew when you go look at the account in john 13:21 in verses following perhaps if you go look at that i won't dig into it today we discussed it when we were studying the gospel of john but It's possible that Jesus might have told John that it would be Judas, but I'll let you take a look at that. Clearly, the others did not know, and even John, if he was told, didn't suspect Judas at any time up to that. Jesus had always treated Judas exactly the same and had tried to train him and given him all the opportunity to accept him as he was with the group of apostles. Verse 25, And Judas... Who was betraying him answered and said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. And he said to him, Jesus said to Judas, You have said it yourself. So here we see Judas feigning respect for Jesus by calling him Rabbi. We just read, Judas has already set up this thing with the Jewish leaders that he's looking for an opportunity to betray him in verse 16. So, Judas is already working on his plan of how he's going to go about betraying Jesus. Actually, when you go look at the account in John 13, verse 30, it tells us that Judas then left from eating the meal with Jesus. And you know, if you go and eat a meal with the person that you're getting ready to go betray, that's just serious treachery. That's the heart that we see in Judas. That's the type of heart that he had. He did not have faith in Jesus. And he's trying to now, he's been paid money, he's trying to figure out a way to make a profit out of what he knows the religious leaders want to do to Jesus. Verse 26, And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So the bread symbolized his body that he was going to give as a sacrifice for us. Verse 27 And he took a cup, and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This also symbolized that his blood would be given, would be sacrificed. Verse 28 For this is my blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of many for forgiveness of sins. So Jesus's body and blood would be shed and pay the debt, and it would replace this shedding of animal blood to cover our sins. And it would be one shedding of blood that would then cover all our sins, past, present, and future, if we would just place our faith in Jesus Christ. Let me just finish this out, and then I want to come back and talk about the Lord's Supper a little bit. Verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the Lord's Supper, and Jesus is saying to continue to do this in memory of me. It symbolizes Jesus' sacrifice for us. We still celebrate this today, Christians do, when we have communion. Actually, some call it the Eucharist. The term Eucharist means give thanks, which you see in verse 27. It says, and he took cup and gave thanks and then gave it to them. That's what Eucharist means. And as I mentioned, even the Jewish people still celebrate Passover today. They're not celebrating Jesus, they're celebrating their escape from the bondage in Egypt. But this blood, it's the basis of the New Covenant that we read about in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. Let me just touch a little bit on the Lord's Supper, because it is so important for all of us as Christians. We celebrate this even today in many of our churches I did want to touch on, you may be Catholic or you may have gone to a Catholic church before and you're not Catholic. And you may wonder, well, why won't they let me participate in communion? That's what they call it. And that's because Catholics, their faith teaches that the bread and the wine are actually changed. It's called transubstantiation. It's actually changed by the priest into the actual body and blood of Christ. And that's what they believe. Therefore, if you are not a Catholic, you are not allowed to participate in that communion. Let me show you a couple of, well, let me show you one. I I have several verses, but I'll show you one key verse of why the Protestants view that differently. If you'll turn over to 1 Corinthians, we studied this when we were studying 1 Corinthians, but go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me jump in at verse 23. For I received from the Lord, this is Paul talking, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus... Because he wasn't there. Remember, Paul became an apostle later on after Jesus was resurrected. So he's saying he received this from Jesus, which he then taught to them, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So it says, continue to do this to remember the sacrifice that I gave. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let me come back and touch on that in a minute. Let me unpack this a little bit. Paul is teaching that the Lord's Supper, it came to him from Jesus Christ, and it's something that we should continue to do, and that we should do it in memory, in remembrance of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. As I said, Catholics take this literally. Protestants do not view it that way. Now, Lutherans, just by the way, they believe in consubstantiation. So they don't think the bread and the wine actually change, but their belief is that Christ's body and blood is present in the bread and the wine, with the bread and the wine. That's what they believe. Most Protestants, they believe that, particularly reading in verse 26 and 27, it's referring to bread and drinking the cup that it's symbolic, that it's still bread, it's still wine, and that we're called to do that again in memory, that those are symbolic symbols of Christ's body and blood. And we're to do this often and to focus our attention on the sacrifice that Christ gave for us. He gave his body, he gave his blood to pay for our sins. And we're to focus our attention on that. And in fact, then when you look in verse 27, it says, if we do it in an unworthy manner, we'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And I think what that's talking about is we are to repent before taking communion. We're to get our heart right. We're to prepare, confess our sins. We shouldn't go about this in a way that Oh, okay, well, here's communion again. Let's just eat the bread and the wine or the juice and, you know, not prepare your heart for it. It's saying that when you do that in an unworthy manner, that's a sin against the Lord. It's not honoring Christ or what he did for us. So we should examine ourselves before partaking of communion or the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number asleep. So it says this can even bring sickness and even death. Some have died because they haven't taken communion or the Lord's Supper seriously and prepared themselves in the right way verse 31 but if we judged ourselves rightly we should not be judged so i just wanted to touch on that a little bit because communion and the lord's supper is something that you can just begin to take for granted and not really prepare your heart and so i encourage you the next time you do that really prepare your heart and ask the holy spirit to put on your heart what sins you need to confess what unconfessed sins do you have and prepare your heart and be thankful. Give thanks, it says, for this amazing sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That's something that we should be so thankful for, that we have been given our salvation and forgiveness of our sins. It's by God's grace, nothing that we did to earn it. We should be so thankful for that. And so I just wanted to sort of touch on that a little bit and let you be thinking about that. Let's go back over to Matthew 26, verse 30. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So see, even after they celebrated this supper, which is now we referred to as the Lord's Supper, They sang hymns. Back then, during Passover, they usually sang Psalms 115 to 118. They probably sang other hymns. But that practice that we still carry forward today, singing is a form of worship. And so, even if you have a terrible voice, God gave you that voice. You ought to be singing worship and praise to God when you have that opportunity. Verse 31, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, meaning Jesus, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered, meaning not only the nation of Israel, but also the disciples, as we will see. They will abandon Jesus. And you see, Jesus says every single one of them are going to fall away that night. And by the way, the abandonment of Judas and his betrayal, this was all part of God's plan. But it's clear that Jesus isn't an unknowing victim. I mean, he knows exactly what's going on. He's sovereign. This is a voluntary sacrifice on his part. They didn't capture him. He presented himself as a sacrifice. And yet it says that they will all abandon him. And actually, that also fulfills a prophecy that you can go read about in Zechariah 13, verse 7. Verse 32, we're going to see, but there's still hope. Even though he's going to be sacrificed, we still have hope. There's going to be a resurrection. Verse 32. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So he's saying he is going to suffer a terrible sacrifice, be killed, be crucified. But he is going to rise again. And they are to meet him in Galilee after the resurrection. They're not to go until they have proof of the resurrection. And they'll see that proof by way of the empty tomb, as we will see. And he's actually going to remind them again when we get over to chapter 28 and verses 7 and 10 that they are to go to Galilee. Galilee was a place that he wanted to meet with them out of the spotlight upon his resurrection. He will eventually be seen by over 500 people, but he wanted to meet with the disciples in Galilee. Those were his original followers, and we will see that happen. And he wants to go to Galilee, which is where he spent most of his time in ministry. Verse 33, but Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away, meaning all the disciples, because of you, I will never fall away. So Peter, here he goes again, he's a proud guy, he's self-confident, he thinks that he has better knowledge than even Jesus does, he thinks he's smarter than Jesus, and Jesus is wrong. While Jesus has told him that he's gonna fall away, he's saying, nope, you're wrong, Peter is self-confident, And he's saying, you're wrong, Jesus. I'm not going to fall away. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, being Peter, truly I say to you that this very night before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. So here Peter, he's the spokesman for the group. And yet Jesus is saying, you're going to deny me within hours. And that's what we're going to see. It's going to happen within hours. Verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I must die, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. So they're all agreeing with Peter. He's the spokesman. They're all saying the same thing. Nope, we're not going to deny you, Jesus. And I want you to remember, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. The Holy Spirit won't be given until we get over into Acts 2. We read there, and then we see the tremendous change in them after that. And then we're also going to see Peter, after his denial, is going to be reconciled with Jesus as well, and we'll read about that as well. Verse 36 Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. So, The word Gethsemane, it means olive press. It's located on the western slope of the Mount of Olives and it faces Jerusalem. That's the location of it. Verse 37 And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Remember, the two sons of Zebedee are the apostles James and John. So Peter, James, and John are the closest to Jesus, these are his very closest friends and disciples. And he takes the three of them with him because he wants to teach them how to pray. He wants to teach them how to depend upon God rather than themselves. And we're going to see. Jesus is going to go through this extreme emotional distress because he knows what's about to happen. And it says he took the three with him, verse 37, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He also wanted them to pray with them. Verse thirty nine And he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. So this is the model that we should follow. Jesus is showing it's okay for us to pour out our wants and our hearts to God in a honest way, Even if we know deep down in our heart it's not what God wants, I mean, Jesus knows the plan. He knows this terrible death and sacrifice he's going to have. He also knows he's going to be separated from the Father when he is paying for the debt for our sins. And he's never been separated from the Father and so he doesn't want that and remember jesus is fully god and yet he's fully human and he knows this is going to be a terrible trial that he has to go through and he's praying to the father if there's any way if you got a plan b boy i would sure like to do plan b But in the end, he says, but not as I will, your will be done. I want to do what you want to do. So it's okay to pray our heart out, but then we must be willing to accept God's wisdom and his love in not granting us sometimes what we ask for. We've got to trust him. And Jesus is showing us this great model by ending our prayers with your will be done. Whatever you want to have done, that's what I want to have done. And I will submit to your will, Father, I don't want to disobey what the Father wants. That's what Jesus is saying. But again, Jesus can't stand the thought of this separation that he knows is about to happen, where he's separated from the Father to pay for our sins. But yet he wants to do the will of the Father. And so he gave himself as a sacrifice. And he's going to go through this experience of the Father's wrath is going to come down on him as he suffers for all of our sin, even though he had never done anything wrong. He had never done anything to offend the Father. But he has to go through this to pay the debt for our sins. And unfortunately, there's many people... Probably many people we know that are going to end up at their death, they're going to suffer this horrible experience that Jesus went through of being separated forever from the Father. Jesus hated sin, and yet he took on our sins to provide for our salvation and our forgiveness. Verse 40, And he came to the disciples, this is Jesus, and found them sleeping, and said to Peter, So, you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. He's really disappointed with them. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, the disciples, they don't understand what's about to happen. They're oblivious to the agony that Jesus is feeling as he knows this death and suffering that he's going to have to go through and this separation from the Father to pay for our sins. And yet he's telling us that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is willing, but our flesh is weak. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to help us. 42, he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. So now we see a little bit of difference in what Jesus is saying He's still praying that, hey, if there's another way, if you got a plan B, let's talk about it. But at the same time, we see he now appears to have greater resolve now to obey. Not that he wasn't going to obey, but he knows this is what has to be done. This is the Father's will. It just appears there's less distress in what he's praying here. We can see he's preparing himself, although he is saying a second time, if this can't go away unless I drink it, this cup, this terrible death that he's got to endure your will be done. Verse 43, And he came back and found them, all the disciples, sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. So Jesus prays this three times, that, Father, if there's another way, you know, let's talk about it. But at the end of the day, your will be done. What a great model for us. But we see how weak spiritually the disciples are. And they don't realize what's about to happen they're all going to soon enter temptation and deny and abandon Jesus. That's what Jesus said would happen, and that's what's going to happen. So now we see here in verse 45, Jesus comes back, and he's not pleased with the disciples' lack of prayer and obedience. Verse 45, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. He says, hands of sinners. These are people who have clearly rejected him as the Messiah. Verse 46, arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So Jesus is now ready. The time for prayer and sleep is over. And Jesus is now going boldly to meet his enemies. Verse 47, and while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12 came up accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priest and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him, that's Judas, gave them a sign saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one sees him. And immediately he, being Judas, came to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. This is total hypocrisy. Look, he's feigning respect to him, calling him Rabbi, and then kissing him, feigning love for him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So Judas betrays their friendship of three years and just totally rejects Jesus and betrays him over to the high priest. Verse 51, And behold, one of those, and we know this is Peter, if we go read the account in John eighteen ten, who were with Jesus... Reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, meaning Peter, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. So Jesus wanted to keep them alive rather than dying in a big battle right there. He wanted to keep them alive so that they could then spread the gospel. 53. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? A legion is 6,000 soldiers. So times 12, that's 72,000 angels that Jesus is saying that he could just ask the Father to give him. And it's fascinating to me, if you go over and read an account in Second Kings chapter 19, verse 35, In that account, it only took one angel to take out 185,000 men. So think what, you know, 12 legions, 72,000 angels could do. Verse 54, how then shall the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen this way? So Jesus is not trying to escape. Verse 55, at that time, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Do you see that? All the disciples left him and fled. So they all took off. That fulfilled the prophecy that Jesus had given us in verse 31. Now, before we start verse 57, let me set this up. This is actually the second trial. There was a first trial that Matthew chose not to write about in his gospel. You can go read about it in John chapter 18, verse 19. It was a trial with Annas. Remember, he was the high priest before Caiaphas. They take him to Annas, so he must be sort of behind this whole thing as well. So trial number one, this is trial number two that we're going to read about here. So it's probably now just before 3 a.m., and I say that because cocks usually began to crow at about 3 a.m., and we're going to see the cock crow after Peter's denials here shortly. So this is in the dead of the night, okay? This is before 3 a.m. most likely. So we'll pick up, this is going to be trial number two, verse 57. Verse 57. And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. So this whole group is gathered together, you know, before three in the morning. They're trying to make it like the law is being followed, and they're trying to act like they're really upset because Jesus has violated their Jewish law. But if you look at everything they're doing, this is an illegal meeting at night. They're plotting a murder without a trial. They're doing it during the special festival, during the feast. All of that is against the Pharisee law. All of it. And this trial, they don't even have an indictment. And by the way, the Sanhedrin council, they were only allowed to hear charges and only act as judge and jury. They weren't even authorized to bring charges. And yet, here we go. We see the Sanhedrin. They're violating all their own rules, even by the way they're conducting these trials. At night, at 3 a.m. And by the way, their law also required, if it's a capital punishment trial, which this is, it had to be public, and it had to be in the temple. And here, this is a private trial before 3 a.m. in the morning. So they're violating all their own laws. Verse 58, But Peter also followed him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. So even though we know Peter's going to deny Jesus, to Peter's credit, he did go into the high priest courtyard and he's not even supposed to be there. He's uninvited. So he was risking his life by even going there. So we got to give Peter some credit here. Verse 59. Now the chief priest and the whole council. So this is the whole Sanhedrin council is gathered here before three in the morning trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And they did not find it, even though many false witnesses came forward. Look at that. So they couldn't even find anyone to say that Jesus had done anything wrong. Nothing. And by the way, they were listening to false testimony. They even brought these false witnesses. And if you go read the account in Mark chapter fourteen fifty-six, it even says the false witnesses all their testimony was all inconsistent, so it was clear that it was all false. But the Jewish leaders, they wanted Jesus killed. This is also a violation of the Ninth Commandment, to not give false testimony against anyone, against your neighbor. That's in Exodus 20:16. So even the way they're constructing this trial with false witnesses and false testimony, they're violating the Ninth Commandment. And they're also, as I mentioned, illegally acting as the prosecutor. That's not their role. That isn't even what they're authorized to do. And at the end of verse 60, it says, But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. These two, they're also false witnesses. They were paid to give false testimony. But it required, under their law, remember, you have to have two witnesses. And this was all they could come up with. They couldn't get Jesus on sedition, which is what they were trying. Sedition means inciting the people to rebel, because they knew if they could get him on a crime like that, then they could go to Rome, and Rome would want to deal with Jesus. If it was just blasphemy or something religious, Rome wasn't going to be interested and wouldn't kill Jesus. And remember, they don't have the power. Rome did not give them the power of capital punishment. So they had to get Rome involved. And these false witnesses say, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That's not even what he said. Let's go take a look at what he said in John 2.19 real quick. I'll just read it real quick so we know how false it is. John 2.19 says, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So he was talking about himself. This isn't what he said, and so this is false testimony. But two of them said it, and so they accept this, and they're going to try to say this is blasphemy. I'm back over in Matthew 26, verse 62. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. So he's actually putting him under oath. He is God, so he is putting him under the oath of God. It's kind of interesting. I adjure you under the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. All right, so Jesus wasn't saying anything up to this point because he wasn't guilty, he had nothing to say. And by the way, that also fulfilled Isaiah 53, 7, where it said he would not say anything. He was taken to his death and he kept his mouth quiet. By the way, it's also illegal under Jewish law to force self-incrimination, yet that's what they're doing. So they violated their own laws in so many different ways. It's just incredible. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, Hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's Daniel's prophecy. The Messiah would be a perfect man, and Jesus is now telling them very clearly, He is the Messiah. The high priest, verse 65, tore his robes, saying, He is blasphemed. So, Tearing your robes, that's a sign of revulsion, indignation. He says, What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. Blasphemy carried a sentence of death, and yet he's going to be sentenced to death for telling the truth. He is God. And also, by the way, you'll find this interesting. In Exodus, it also says it's illegal for the high priest to tear his robes because that would then sway the court. So even that's illegal. But death is the penalty for blasphemy under Jewish law. And so now the high priest is saying, Behold, you've now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? In verse 66. And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. So they can't pin anything on Jesus Other than what he has been saying all along, which is the truth, which is that he is the Messiah. He is God. Verse 67, they then spat in his face and beat him with their fist and others slapped him the pharisees and sadducees actually they don't like each other very much but now they're acting together as they're slapping him and beating him he's actually blindfolded you can read that in mark 1465 and in luke 2264 if you're taking notes so they've blindfolded jesus now they're spitting on him beating him with their fist slapping him in his face in verse 68, and they say, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? So they're just mocking him. They don't believe he's God. If he's God, well, you're blindfolded. You ought to be able to tell us who's hitting you. So that's the end of trial number two. If you want to read trial number three, I'm past time now anyway. I'll leave that to you. Trial number three is in Luke 22:66. So you can go take a look at that. And let me just wrap this up with these following verses. Verse 69, Peter's betrayal. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a certain servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, so he was uncomfortable where he was with all the questions that he was having, he went out to the gateway. Another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. So Peter actually swears now. And to do that with an oath, that means Peter invited God's curse if he wasn't telling the truth. And Peter says, I do not know the man. Verse 73, and a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for the way you talk gives you away. Verse 74, then he began to curse and swear, this is Peter, I do not know the man, and immediately a cock crowed. And in fact, when you look in Luke, verse 22, 61, it says the Lord actually looked at Peter when the cock crowed. Verse 75, And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is, again, well before dawn. As I said, cocks begin to crow about 3 a.m., But Peter had been depending on his own strength. Remember, we talked about that rather than depending on God. Peter, he now realizes what he has done. He would never rely on himself or distrust Jesus in Jesus's words ever again. And Peter repented from this, unlike Judas, who never had faith and never repented. Peter was reconciled to Jesus. You can read that there as he ate fish with Jesus after Jesus had been resurrected. You can read that in John 21, verses 15 through 17. So let me just summarize some of what we've read today and studied. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we need to remember the sacrifice of Jesus as we celebrate that. We're commanded to do that, and that's what we should do. We should also speak the truth in spite of the cost. We shouldn't deny Jesus in front of people the way we see these disciples And we shouldn't do that now because we have the Holy Spirit. Remember, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. They'll receive the Holy Spirit over in Acts. And we're to remember what Jesus endured for us to give us our salvation and to forgive us of our sins. And just trust God, even when we're going through trials and don't depend upon ourselves. We are going to have trials and difficulties. And you know what? We're going to fail. We're going to fail like Peter did. And when we do, recognize that god loves us and he's there to restore us and he wants to use us in very powerful ways even when we stumble that's what god's grace is all about let me open it up now for discussion i'd love to hear your thoughts i'm sorry i went a little long this was a long chapter but i thought it important that we covered all any thoughts or comments hey larry how do your jewish friends reconcile all this when it's all based on scripture have you ever had that conversation I've had it many, many times with people of the Jewish faith, and some of them come around, and some of them don't. Some of them just say, yeah, but that's all in your New Testament book. We don't believe. We're still looking for the conquering king. He's promised us that he's going to restore the nation of Israel, and that's all true. They just can't comprehend that there's two comings. They can't comprehend that Jesus came once and he's coming a second time. They can't comprehend this interim church age. I've had some of them say, yeah, but you're looking for Jesus's second coming and I'm looking for his first. We both believe the same thing. And I go, well, you know, we really don't because I believe Jesus has already come and died for our sins and I have my sins forgiven and you don't. So we don't believe in the same things, but that's where they get hung up. I mean, the evidence that supports his birth and resurrection are clear. So clear. And that's why I always try to point to the prophecy references, uh, many of them. I wish I had time to actually go look at those. If you wrote them down, you ought to go read them because it's so clear. The connections that run through the Bible are so, so clear when you study the entire Old Testament and New Testament. You can't make this stuff up. Yeah, that's my point. You know, it's all based on truth and evidence and everything else. And it just amazes me how they deny it anyway. And, you know, these religious leaders, they wanted him dead. And I assure you, they weren't going back and looking at the Old Testament and saying, oh, okay, so we have to do it this way, (laughs) you know, so we can make sure we do it all exactly the way the Old Testament said. No, this was God's plan. He laid it out for them in the Old Testament. And we see it playing out in prophecy being fulfilled throughout the New Testament. You're absolutely right. Hey, Larry, a couple of things. On the worldly side, And Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. And then uh, the, convert, the other side of that sense is, you said, the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.9 says if we don't have the Spirit, we don't belong to Him. And in John chapter 20, after the resurrection, in the upper room, Jesus said to them, you finally believe, and he breathed on them, those disciples that had followed him, he breathed on them and the Holy Spirit. And then the great coming of the Holy Spirit was in Acts. But they had the Holy Spirit given to them after the resurrection so that they could preach the gospel and it would be affected by God himself. That's really good. I appreciate you bringing all that into the discussion and very helpful. I know some of you do take notes to be able to go back and study some of what we talked about because I just don't have time to go cover all of this as we're going through this just the way we're going to take a chapter each session. There's plenty here that you can go and devote to further Bible study for the rest of the week just going back and looking at some of these other references I give you. That's why I provide those to you. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or comments. You can reach out to me at larryodonnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this podcast and my weekly blog by sending a text to 56316, type Larry in the text box, and hit send. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.